So welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. Uh, this is Claude Jennings, the producer and engineer and uh, transmitter deluxe. How are you, Claude? <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you, sir? Hope you have a happy fourth. Yes, yes, to you as well. We'll talk about your plan in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about America, what's good, what's bad, what the dangers are, what the threats are. Discuss the news of the day. I'm excited about today. Representative Mike Gallagher. I call him Captain Gallagher from the Marine Corps. He represents Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District, uh, and he's a brilliant guy. I, you know, embarrass him on air, but I'll tell you, he's, he speaks like five languages, PhD, Princeton, uh, super smart, and apparently in all the drills and trainings was always number one. <laughs> of course. My, this is what my <laughs> Marine son told me. He was a buddy of his. I want to talk about a few things first. So what are your 4th of July plans, Claude? Okay, so you going around July, with the empty plate again or what? Normally I would, but you know one of my favorite places to go here uh, in America is historic Williamsburg, Virginia. We talk about this all the time. And I so, thought you were going to say uh, that place with the half smokes. Oh, Ben's Chili Bowl. Yeah, Ben's yeah. Chili Bowl. I got, a, the, I got the Chili Bowl right there in my fridge. I got about six half spicy half smokes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, ready to go. No, I mean, we're going to Williamsburg. Williamsburg? Going to Williamsburg, Virginia. Going to catch some fireworks down there. They do all these kind of historic reenactment stuff. Going to take Manny around, you know, educate him a little bit. You don't have your cousin telling you where the fireworks are, do you? Yeah, no, we're not doing that anymore. He had one time to do it. He got it all wrong. And so we don't trust him. That was in Charlotte, I think. That was was in Charlotte. Exactly. Yeah. The entire family doesn't trust him anymore. So we don't listen to anything he has to say. So So you go down there, watch fireworks, and. and do the tour of Williamsburg, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a place we go to a lot. I like it. You know, eight-year-old Manny loves it. And so we'll do all the historic stuff. We'll go to Jamestown. We'll do Yorktown Riverwalk and all the stuff. Maybe take him out fishing a little bit. I think I'm going to sneak some golf in, um, but we'll do a lot of history stuff. History and golf. Good. Basically. <laughs> and you'll be, you'll be there on the 4th? Yeah, we'll be there on the 4th. We'll be You're there staying the there overnight, yeah. obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah. Should be fun. How about what, you? What are your plans? Well, uh, I'm in North Carolina. We're going to celebrate. There's like two or three parties. There's one party I'm particularly interested in. It's the golf cart parade party. Oh. So uh, people are here in this place. They get in their golf carts. And they decorate <laughs> them with a patriotic theme. Uh-huh. And Mrs. Bennett had a plan. I'm not sure it's going to work about, oh, uh, one of our son's girlfriend. And she was going to be Lady Liberty. And Mrs. Bennett made up a whole you know costume for her. And, <laughs> you can imagine. Anyway, the people girl, get the golf carts, they decorate them, they sit in them, they, you know, they uh, have patriotic themes or whatever they want to do, news of the day themes, and uh, there'll be 80 or 90 carts uh, decorated wow. like that. Wow. And I go to this party, I don't go in the cart, I sit there in a the chair and watch them mm-hmm. go by. <laughs> and I sit next to a guy he's in the house, he's got a hose and a lot of, and he, he sprays people as they go by. Wait a minute, that's not nice. Well, the kids, it's now a custom. Everybody knows it. So people come armed on the golf carts with their own uh, water hoses, water pistols, soakums, you know, those toys and stuff. Right, yeah. That's fun. There'll be a lot of hot dogs, a lot of hamburgers, a lot of flags. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pretty patriotic place here in this part of North Carolina, eastern North Carolina. Mm -hmm. We're not near Chapel Hill, so it's Mm -hmm. uh, flags are waving. Right. And uh, it's 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 a it's a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to it. I, I love this day. Uh, important day. Uh, it, um, the greatest country in the history of the world with our problems and shortcomings. All, all in all, I mean, why are why are 500,000 people crossing the border today or however many there are? Yeah. No, if and, we and, were and, doing and, something right. Yeah, and risking a lot. I mean, risking a yeah, lot. Risk, yeah. People are sending their kids without their own supervision to, to, to and, and I mean, leaving it up to chance they get here safely to get to this country. And something that I learned from you, Dr. Bennett, years ago that I that I say a lot when, when people, you know, talk to me and they're always down on the country and stuff like this. It's something that I learned from you, and it's so true. And this is the, one of the things I love most about this country. And again, I learned it from you the fact that America has the ability to self-correct. You know what I mean? We yep. don't need outside influences to come in and correct things. When the, the country, listen, yes, got something, got things wrong, and we continue to try to, 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 to become a better union, and, we, and we, we want to continue to get better. But the people in the country makes the country better. Like, we don't need anyone from the outside to come right. and force our hand, to force 
our hand in good. We want to be good. We inherently we we shoot for goodness and for righteousness. And so the the, the people within the country corrects the country, and that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's the American capacity for self renewal. That's it. Self renewal is what mm-hmm. you were saying. We do it ourselves. Yep. Yep. We look at that. We say, boy, that's wrong. We gotta we gotta fix that, and we do it, and then we go fix it. Mm-hmm. And it might take us some time, but but we get there. Um, and I, you know, I think, uh, you know, right now we're in an interesting time. I was listening to a new song, with Toby Keith or something about America, what's left of America. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are, we are at odds, man. We are in opposition, polarization, at a peak. And, uh, you know, let's bring this union back together. That's something we ought to think about on this 4th of July. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now is Representative Captain Mike Gallagher. He represents Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District. We're doing this in Zoom, folks. You can only listen, but we see Captain Gallagher, Mike Gallagher, Congressional Representative of the 8th District, but he's got Packers, Green Bay Packers, feel behind him. So it jumps to the top of the news. What can you tell us about Aaron Rodgers? (laughs) I have no uh, no insider info. I still hope he's going to come back. Uh, the man is is very good at throwing footballs precisely where they need yeah. to be thrown. Yes. Uh, yes. I've noticed. So, I mean, at this point, it just seems like it's it's sort of pride and ego on both sides, perhaps. And I I was a, a big critic of the the Jordan Love pick last year, but just the fact the way they handled it seems to have rubbed Aaron the wrong way. Um, so I don't know. I wish I had some insider info, but. Yeah. We got to win some more getting, Lombardi trophies here. We're getting close. We're getting close to season. You know, I know. We're getting close. Yeah. I know. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I maybe I don't want you to sign off in the interview, but I when when Brady went up there, I, I picked the Bucks. You know, two <laughs> great quarterbacks, but I, I, I Brady was astounding. I just couldn't believe how how well he did, and it wasn't a great day for the Packers. But I mean, every year I, I kind of select a few teams, you know, win the Super Bowl get some odds and so on. And um, every year you got to think about the Packers because as long as he's slinging it, he, as you say, he puts it in the right place. The right he's time. so good. I and mean, we had the best offense in the NFL last year. So I'm not sure he can claim that he doesn't have enough talent around him. I mean, we've got Devonta Adams, we've got great running right. backs, but um, we'll see. It's uh, the whole thing is uh, very, very troubling here in Titletown, USA. You're an owner, right? I mean, in Wisconsin, don't you all own the Packers? Not everyone. They do. They have a, a scheme where every few years they release yeah. shares that basically means you pay, you know, a five hundred dollars to frame a piece of paper on your wall. Right. But uh, my wife is a is a season ticket holder, uh, and I'm not saying that's why I married her, but it definitely, you know, it added uh, <laughs> the whole the whole deal. All right. Uh, a little more, a little more personal. Not, it straightened me out. You went to Princeton with one of my sons and served the Marine Corps with the other. Do I have that right? This is correct. This John, is you were, were at John's class. You were ahead of John, I think. In Princeton. Yeah, I was one year ahead of John. Yeah. And then, uh, and then you, you knew Joe from the Marine Corps. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, uh, after Princeton, what did you do? I uh, went to Quantico uh, to the basic school. I was commissioned when I graduated from Princeton. Um, and I ended up doing seven years in the Marine Corps. I was what's called a counterintelligence human intelligence officer, which means I led a team, a smaller team of Marines where we were attached to an infantry battalion and we were in charge of collecting information from human sources, which basically, you know, half of that was doing interrogations. Uh, you know, the, the battalion gets a bad guy, brings him back to the headquarters. We interrogate the bad guy, get information. The other half was uh, what's called military source operations, where you kind of cultivate uh, sources clandestinely in the local area in order to get information. Kind of a, a much less sexy version of what the CIA does uh, or a more tactical uh, version of that. And then we kind of did some random things. For example, on my first deployment to Iraq, we did uh, something called Aero Scout, which was a mission we inherited from the recon guys, where we just kind of flew around uh, Al-Ambar province doing various raids right. and missions and so yeah did two two tours in iraq um then kind of floated around the intelligence community for a while i was also a middle east specialist so i had a secondary qualification as a regional affairs officer for the middle east i'd studied arabic at princeton so my language skills helped out with that um but yeah just spent seven years uh, in uniform right. doing marine corps things you were not in afghanistan 
was never in uh, Afghanistan. I want, I want to ask you about that, though, anyway. Uh, how many languages do you have? Uh, I started off as a Latin American studies major uh, at Princeton <laughs> and spent the summer after my freshman or sophomore year in Spain studying Spanish. So at one point I spoke Spanish, uh, but then I transitioned to Arabic. So I have poor, poor English and even poor Arabic and, and maybe the, the vague uh, remembrance of, of Spanish at this point. Anything else? No other no. language? No. Okay. It's pretty, you have a PhD now, right? I do, yes, yes. With that and, and four bucks, I'll get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I, I, I understand. I went back to my uh, University of Texas where I got my PhD. I looked at the uh, bulletin board for jobs, you know, and a lot of, a lot of Uber. <laughs> a lot of Uber up there, but not, not a lot of great teaching positions. So Someone told me that the University of Texas has a bigger endowment than Harvard uh, recently, which I found astounding. I it could be it could be true. It could be true. Wow. I mean, they're they're willing and they're willing to spend it all to get to get a you know to win win the Big Twelve. You know, but <laughs> they will spend they will spend it. Some Texas guy said, you know, apart from all that gold popes sitting on we got the rest of it here in texas <laughs> yeah, that's that's the way that's the way they talk down there anyway, i did my phd there and john bennett as you know uh went to business school there or you may or may not recall that but uh he he, he loved the place mike captain um afghanistan uh i was listening to jack keen this morning on tv is this a mistake to be pulling out of afghanistan Certainly in the way that they're doing it. I think, um, you know, things as as uh, simple as, you know, setting 9-11 as the date of, of withdrawal, I think just give a massive propaganda win to the Taliban. Um, my view, and I totally understand the desire, which I think comes from the American people to reduce our presence in Afghanistan perhaps the, the recognition of geopolitical reality, which is that we need to focus more time and attention on the threat posed by China. But if you look at it, we've, we've kind of arrived at a, a sustainable small presence in Afghanistan through painful trial and error. Uh, and it's my view from, you know, a modest investment of troops and, and special operators on the ground enabling local forces is the best way to, reduce our presence uh, while at the same time preventing catastrophe in the form of another terrorist safe haven or just general regional uh, chaos. And that at a minimum, uh, while I think our hopes for, you know, any sort of, you know, functioning, you know, model democracy in Afghanistan have evaporated, I think we can be honest uh, about our, our minimum goals, which are maintaining um, you know, preventing the Taliban from controlling uh, Kabul, uh, maintaining a base in, in Bagram that would allow us to project power right, throughout right. the region, which also becomes important in the, the China competition. It's a way for us to hold their their space and counter space assets on their western flank at risk. Um, you know, they're making enormous investments in the Gwadar port in Pakistan, for example. Um, you know, I think that's a it's a small investment yeah. of U.S. dollars and resources that's worth it. Uh, over the long term. And I fear that we're already seeing, you know, the intel community sound the alarm about the Taliban taking over yeah. the entire country far quicker than we saw it. So I'm very concerned about this. Um, it could be you know, kind of a Saigon moment um, and it could have enormous implications for the yeah. rest of American credibility. Don't understand it. I mean, I understand 20 years and all, but, you know, we've got American troops places all around the world, right? South Korea and Germany and all sorts of places, right? Yeah. And let me make a, a maybe perhaps even more controversial argument based on my own experience. Um, you know, certainly we should be very judicious about deploying the men and women in uniform into harm's way. But a lot of times when I see these politicians, many of whom haven't served, talk about we're war weary. We need to bring the troops home and endless wars, the troops, the troops. You know, my experience being, you know, a young Marine, certainly in his 20s, uh, was that, you know, I wanted to be deployed. I wanted to be where, where the action is. And, yeah. you know, I'd ra I would have rather been out doing my job than sitting in garrison, um, you know, polishing my rifle yeah. or, or watching a PowerPoint slide. And it's not, you know, the other, the other fallacy I think is that, oh, we're going to save a ton of money by getting out of Afghanistan. Well, maybe over the long term you save some money, but, you know, if you bring the troops home or you put them in Germany, you still have to pay them. 
And you still have to feed, you still have to feed them, yeah. right? Yeah. You still have to train them. It's not, it's not exactly as if it, you're saving yeah, a ton sure, of money sure. uh, in the immediate. Uh, and oh, by the way, if your goal is to pivot to the Pacific and focus on China, well, we had to reroute a carrier from the Pacific to cover the Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's very right. problematic. Um, so I, I remain concerned and um, it's something we all need to keep our eye on. No, I think the tax were launched from Afghanistan. Um, you got the whole regional business uh, that you're talking about, the geopolitics there. And you got, if I may say, the, you know, the situation there domestically. You're, those, those girls are not going to be in school once these guys take over. Yeah. You know, where are the advocates for the women, you know? Uh, you know, the Amer- withdrawal of the American presence and influence, Al-Qaeda and Taliban take over. We're, we're, we're not we're going to see those bad influences return. Um, I mean, that's just that, you know, may, that may be the smallest piece of it, but let's, let's go to the geopolitics because it's interesting. We wanted to talk mainly about China and in talking about Afghanistan, you mentioned China two or three times. Um, I, I think the country's waking up a little bit. I, I give Donald Trump credit on that. I think he asserted our, you know, our will some against China and kind of educated everybody what a serious and important, uh, threat that is to the United States in so many ways. I, I give him credit for that. I do think more attention is being paid, but is the right attention being paid? Are we, are we handling China right right now? Well, there's no question we've made a lot of progress in the last four years. And I agree. I think Trump deserves a lot of credit for that um, progress, as do some key players in the previous administration. Uh, people like Secretary Pompeo, uh, Robert yeah. O'Brien, uh, Matt Pottinger is one of the biggest unsung heroes yes, in the last administration. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, uh, effectuated no. what I think is the biggest foreign policy shift since the end of the Cold War, though uh, educated people like you could maybe find some counterexamples. Um, uh, and and I and I think if you look at some of the big things we we did, you know, pulling out of the the INF treaty opens up a lot of opportunities to field certain missile systems in the Indo-Pacific, which are crucial to deterring China. Uh, a lot of the economic pressure we started to put on China, beginning this process, a very painful process of selective economic decoupling from China. Um, you know, increased attention on human rights abuses in, in Xinjiang province, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think what is what most people don't understand is that, at least in Congress on the committees I work on, this there's been a pretty bipartisan shift. In other words, some of Trump's biggest critics I don't think would would quibble with the uh-huh. the foundation of that shift, uh-huh. um, which is really interesting, uh, really interesting. So uh, that being said, um, it's very fragile and there's a lot left to be done in some ways. I actually think the military component of the shift has been the weakest. In other words, we, we have a national defense strategy that unquestionably prioritizes China, China, China. It says the Indo-Pacific is our priority theater. But if you look at where our, our people and our, our weapon systems and our ships and our assets are, it doesn't reflect that shift. Um, and so we have a lot more work to do in terms of fielding or, or having a, a force posture and presence in the Indo-Pacific that reflects the fact that we're prioritizing China. I think the pandemic has also revealed um, that yeah. we are still dangerously dependent on China for the manufacturing of, of basic things. Uh, consider pharmaceuticals, advanced pharmaceutical ingredients. Uh, you know, they threatened in the early stages of the pandemic to cut off the export of APIs to impose pain on America. So there's a lot of thinking on how do we onshore, how do we nearshore, how do we, at least in critical areas, how do we make sure that we're manufacturing things in the free world and not, um, you know, uh, communist adversary. And then in, you know, uh, an area where, you know, you're, you're well um, acquainted with, um, you know, how do we dust off the, the Reagan playbook of, of good old ideological warfare? And start to talk about contrasting, you know, American values with the values of the Chinese Communist Party or lack thereof. Um, And uh, in public speeches and and some of what we do covertly, how do we wage ideological warfare effectively? I'll talk about several theaters here of this uh, of this dispute or debate or or challenge. uh, Indeed, even bigger than that. Um, First of all, (laughs) it's very interesting where I sit. 
I was talking to a guy from a major state university executive who proudly announced that they'd kept tuition down, you know, for the last three, four years and raised it. And I said, how many Chinese students have you taken in that time? He said, oh, we've tripled the number of Chinese (laughs) students. As I understand it, these Chinese students are literally by law uh, agents of the state. That is, they are, they check in too while they're here. They check in with Chinese authorities. I mean, I, I don't want to go so far as to say they're all spies, but a lot of the Chinese students who are here are bound to uh, report what they see and hear. Uh, and um, this is a, a very large number of people. Uh, am I right about this? This is uh, correct. Um, and I think there's a, you know, we, I had made the quip about UT's endowment. I think there's another pernicious uh, aspect of this whole decoupling or competition or whatever you want to call it that higher education is going to have to grapple with, um, which is to what extent are university endowments um, and, you know, the pension funds of, of every state, yes. Or, yes. Are, are they yes. actually investing not just in, in Asia in general or China in particular, but in uh, PLA affiliated uh, companies that are building things designed to destroy Americans in a future war. We discovered this in, in three years ago with something called the thrift savings plan, which is what my military right. retirement money is invested in. And, and most federal employees uh, via something called the MSCI index was being uh, tied to um, Chinese military companies. And this right. is really interesting, Bill, um, Dr. Bennett, I should say, no, sorry. Um, well, both wearing our Under Armour T-shirts this morning was fine. <laughs> Bill was good. Yeah. Uh, the, Twenty years ago, in a National Defense Authorization Act, we asked the Pentagon to come up with a list of communist Chinese military companies, CCMC list, because the Pentagon needs an acronym for everything. Um, and it, they, the Clinton administration ignored it. Uh, the Bush administration ignored it. The Obama administration ignored it. And the Trump administration ignored it until a group of us, um, a, a letter that was sent by myself, Tom Cotton, Chuck Schumer, and a Democrat in the House, is very bipartisan, demanded the list. And finally, we got this list of, of basically PLA-affiliated companies. And I think there's, I bring that up to say, I think there's going to be increasing scrutiny. If the story of the last four years is that we scrutinize Chinese money being invested in the United States, I think the next phase of this is going to be increased scrutiny on American money being invested in certain Chinese yeah. companies that are building things that have military applications or surveillance technology or, 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 or things like that. I think that's coming, particularly for higher education, and they don't realize it yet. Yeah, this is classic. This is Lenin, right? I mean, fashioning the rope with which we will hang it. You know, we're paying for the rope here, making the rope. Uh, this is very, very, very serious. Um, universities, I mean, people I've talked to, they don't really seem to much care about the attitudes of their students as long as they get that tuition. And they're, oh, they're I, trying to, yeah, go ahead. Can I ask you, Bill, I wonder, do you think, univer- maybe this is a bit of a non sequitur, but I, I wonder if the pandemic uh, wasn't an extinction, like a delayed extinction level event for a lot of universities, sort of mid-tier. I mean, the, the elite universities will be fine, presumably, but mid-tier universities, small liberal arts universities, just the way in which the pandemic disrupted the whole thing, expedited yes. a digital yes. class. I, I mean, do they realize that, do you think? I mean, or are they innovating as a result or, or no? Is it just back to the They'll, be, they'll be late. Some people will be shuttered, they'll close their doors. Some people yeah. wiped out by this. Uh, I, I would hope this thing would uh, cause a whole rethinking of education. Uh, not just uh, higher ed, but elementary and secondary. And you see that kind of populist uprising going on around the country. Absolutely. School board meetings and so on. Uh, a blessing of COVID, that's an odd locution, but parents looking over the shoulders of their kids on the screen saying, what, what, are, they, what are they teaching you? What, what exactly. is this? You know, critical race theory and so on. So we'll see. But, but higher ed is, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, uh, Harvard doesn't allow uh, ROTC or OCS, but uh, does have the Bin Laden Center, you know, so they're, you know, they're from funded by the family. So they're kind of, yes. they kind of don't care about this, uh, this stuff. Let's go to you because you mentioned it. Let's go to Wall Street. Uh, let's go to the NBA. Uh, yeah. Or you want to talk about it. people, do these guys not care about the Uyghurs, about 
uh, extermination concentration camps is is just money rules, and and which is more serious, the you know the Nike, the NBA, or or the Wall Street investors, uh, they they don't seem to worry about the, the what they're financing and supporting yeah. in China. Well, I think both um, both are driven by the same thing, which is um, which is money. Uh, you know, I'm sorry if that sounds cynical, but. I kind of call this the Dillinger problem. You know, why did Dillinger rob banks? Because that's where the money that's is. Where the money was, yeah. You know, why why does LeBron James, you know, lecture us about, you know, racism and inequity in America while, you know, telling Daryl Morey, you know, the Rockets yeah. to shut up when he criticizes China for attacking yeah. Hong Kong? It's because he wants to make a ton of money uh, uh, in China. The NBA uh, sees china as a cash cow um you see john cena the actor oh gosh just shameful he he called what he called the taiwan a country and uh had to apologize in 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 um, in mandarin i think right yeah yeah i mean just just embarrassing you know yeah at at a man who who portrayed a marine in the movie the marine it was a double whammy for us marines bill yeah yeah. Uh, you know and wall street i think similarly you know, you talk to major asset managers and, and people that are moving billions and billions around, they'll say that I mean, that's that's where the growth is is happening. Yeah. So if you're asking me not to do business in China, you're asking me to unilaterally um, disarm. Or I think we don't understand, you know, the extent to which for major hedge funds, uh, a lot of their LPs are actually Chinese companies, um, you know, Chinese tech companies that are building technology designed to not only enslave their own population, but undermine American technological dominance. So again, I, this is, I've said it before, but this is the thorniest aspect of this competition and, and what makes it different from the old Cold War, right? We never had to think about decoupling from the Soviet Union because our, our economies didn't really interact uh, that much. Yeah. Whereas we've now woken up after you know 30 some odd years of relentless globalization to figure out that we're just so uh, pregnant with Chinese capital and conflicts of interest. And so, but I, I don't think this is going away. I, I don't think Wall Street can wish it away. I, I think the, the political and geopolitical pressure is only going to intensify. You have major defense officials saying that she could make a move on Taiwan within the next six years. Um, right. And I sit in these rooms with these titans of finance and I, and I just say, I, does this not worry you? Like, how do you price in the risk of this? And to the extent they think about it, it's a distant tail risk. And I, I think that's a risk um, because you can imagine a scenario in which the PLA tries to invade Taiwan or they do a fait accompli strategy and it's successful from a military standpoint. And we lack the will to respond militarily. So all of our. Even though we have a treaty, right? Yeah. Well, we have a vague commitment. We have a policy of strategic ambiguity that, in my opinion, needs to end and become clarified. But you can imagine a lot of that that war uh, playing out in the financial and economic realm, which is which is to say a lot of these people that are making money off China right now will will absorb the most pain in the early stages of a of a kinetic or non kinetic U.S. China competition. And these guys be, uh, you know, you mentioned Schumer and Cotton in the same breath. That maybe is one piece of good news and bipartisanship here. Can these guys on Wall Street be made to stop? Can laws be passed, or is this yeah. is this just persuasion? Uh, what what can happen? I mean, China's China's on the move, uh, and you know, I was really disappointed with the president in in Europe uh, saying, you know, what the other, as I heard it. The main reason that, uh, you know, China will not misbehave terribly in the future or Russia is world opinion. Baloney. They don't care about world opinion. They just, you know, they just do what they want to do. And this notion that they, you know, they want to be a civilized nation and respected as such, maybe, but that's secondary to being powerful. Am I I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong. I I think, well, to the the question of whether they can be... persuaded first um i don't think it's going to i think it's going to take pain not persuasion sorry i i hate to put it that bluntly but 
I just don't think you can sit in a room, even if you had the best people in the room, right? If you, if you took, you know, Pottinger and whoever around to every, you know, big muckety muck on wall street and, and just laid out his theory of the world uh, or all the, the national security officials that are warning about uh, this competition intensifying. I just don't think it's until you change the economics of this and make it more costly to do business with the Chinese communist party and certainly Chinese military affiliate companies uh, and and also and this is an area where we do have to look inward easier to do business not only with American companies in general but defense affiliated and defense adjacent companies and DoD deserves a lot of blame because in some some ways they're a terrible customer uh, and we have a huge massive bureaucracy that is almost deliberately designed to make it hard to do business with the Pentagon. But until you change the basic math equation, I don't think uh, behavior is going to change. One way you can do it is to take that list I talked about and really turn it into a blacklist and a, a toxic list and, and, and effectively sanction anybody that's doing business with those companies. Another area where I think there's a lot of promise, uh, Bill, is, is you know Wall Street is enamored with this concept of, of ESG investing, right? Everything is ESG. It's environmental, social governance. Basically, we're only going to invest in things that are good for the world. So if you're an oil company, you suck. We're not going to invest in you. But if you're making, you know, electric vehicles, let's not worry about the environmental uh, uh, right. negative externalities of how those batteries are made, but we're going to invest in you, right? I'm, par- I'm, I'm being a little bit uh, hyperbolic yeah, sure. in my description, but well, okay. Uh, if, if, if BlackRock's all about ESG, well, then let's extend that concept to China, right? Because China okay. is terrible on the environment okay. uh perhaps the g should uh stand for genocide right and and yeah. reflect the fact that we shouldn't enable a genocidal communist regime um maybe maybe there's a way to jujitsu all the esg energy into a a consistent standard that also accounts for china's terrible human rights records uh, i don't know still how many customers are in uh, china is it a billion yeah 1.4 billion uh yeah. a lot of customers yeah that's you a gotta, lot. I got to do a lot of persuading. Uh, also, why getting India right in this whole game is so important because uh, and having India as a as a partner and an ally over the long term is is absolutely essential to competing effectively with China just because they have, you know, a ton of human beings and a lot of economic potential. Um, I don't think we do a good a good enough job of cultivating India specialists in the national security community. There's just not a lot to draw upon. But if a young you know, Princeton grad or, or kid entering Princeton came to me today and said, hey, I'm interested in foreign policy in general, you know, uh, you know, U.S.-China competition in particular, where should I specialize? I would say India or Indonesia um, are going to become increasingly important. Um, you know, learn the languages, learn the culture, uh, go there, you know, get some street cred. I think that those are both growth industries for young national security professionals. One piece I, I don't understand from what you just said. Were you saying that if if China were to do a military action against Taiwan, which I think they will do, that this would this would have a negative effect on the markets. Yeah, I'm, it, it I guess would. what I'm saying is I think my, my fear and what I'm trying to change as uh, just a low ranking member of the House is that right now we're not adequately positioned to to defend Taiwan. We can get there and I, I it's going to take a crash program, but I think we can get there. Let's assume we don't. They are successful in, in a fait accompli strategy, in, or maybe they take over smaller islands outside of Taiwan or whatever. And we don't have the will, the political will, or the support of the American people to dislodge them from that position. Okay, in that scenario, where we basically gotten outmaneuvered, but the American president still feels, Democrat or Republican, feels like he or she has to do something what is the president going to do if they're not going to send a carrier or launch a, a naval battle against the PLA Navy? What are they going to do? They're going to deploy every economic and financial weapon they have available, which is going to mean pain for everybody that is invested in Tencent or Alibaba or Huawei or ZTE or, or take your stake. So there, I guess I just I'm I'm the argument I'm trying to make to people on Wall Street is. There's a world in which it's not the U.S. military that's taking most of the casualties in this war. It's you and your employees. Um, And the sooner you recognize that and the sooner you hedge against that, the healthier you'll be and the better off America will be, I think. 
Why do we talk about six years? It seems to me they're very aggressive. They're moving a lot here uh, on these islands. Uh, the Japanese are nervous. Uh, obviously, they're cracking down like crazy in Hong Kong. Uh, why six years for Taiwan? I mean, they're already rumblings and they're already flyovers and other things. Uh, why do you think it takes that long? Yeah, well, there's nobody's a... stopping. Nobody's stopping them. This is true. There's one suggestion that 2027 is the, I mean, so today or yesterday was the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. 2027, if memory serves, is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the PLA. Uh, So that's sort of like a symbolic, like, uh, PLA stands for People's Liberation Army, Chinese military. Um, uh, There's a general, I think there's a general. You call China the PRC? Uh, Yeah, but I usually refer to, I, I, what I've tried to do, and again, the caveat here is, is that I'm a, you know, I'm an Arabist by training. I'm a Middle East guy right, who has now right, had right. to learn about China. So take, you know, I'm not trying to pass myself right. off as an expert. What I usually try and do is talk about the Chinese Communist Party, because in my limited knowledge, it's, it's the party that is, is the dominant power. And in everything yes. she says, it's all about loyalty to the party. Um, and and really, it. I think part of the ideological warfare that we need to do is do a better job of drawing a distinction between the party, which has, I think, 90 ish million members. So larger than the population of, of Germany uh, and the people who should be our allies and who indeed are the biggest victims of the party's yeah. repression. And so that's sort of how I think about it. And, and you know, so when I talk when I talk about Xi, I don't refer to him as president. I refer to him as general secretary because all of his power derives from the fact that he's general secretary of the Communist okay. Party. So those may seem like small things, but at least it's a good way for me I to understand no, myself of the so, way. So why six years? So, so there's a hundredth anniversary of the founding of the military. And then I think there's a general recognition that um, the next decade is going to be a rough one for us because we have a lot of defense bills that are coming due. Um, and so I don't know if it's six years or it's two years or if it's eight years, but I, I think if you're Xi Jinping and you're looking around the world, you think, wow, the Americans seem pretty divided right now. There seems to be a sort of an inward focus or an isolationist revival in both parties in America. Uh, Putin, uh, to my uh, right has seems to have or north or whatever seems to have gotten away with invading a country um, and just got a you know a little bit of an economic slap on the wrist and oh I just got away with uh, uh, abrogating all of my promises on Hong Kong and and taking over a free and open right. democratic society right I mean this would be a pretty good time to strike and oh what I think what is she's late he's late is he late? Uh, is he early seventies or something like that? I mean, he he's he's trying to become you know the third paramount leader in Chinese society. He's eliminated term limits. Like this is his legacy issue. So sometime okay. in the next decade, I think we'll get to the danger zone. Um, you know what they call the period of strategic opportunity is really a decade of of maximum danger for America, uh, and it really works. I would think. I would think the Biden presidency would be. The time they'd want to act as yeah. opposed to seeing what might happen next, where you might have a tougher precedent, just to put it simply. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think, you know, I've tried to be fair to the the Biden team. Um, I think there's a real divide in their in their national security team right now. There are a group of folks who I think have a more realistic view of China and recognize that we're not going back to the the pre-Trump status quo of, of China can be a responsible stakeholder and this and that. But then you have the John Kerry wing, which believes that climate change is our, our paramount national security threat. And therefore we must cooperate with the CCP uh, on climate change. And that, that there's a real tension there that I think is undermining our, our, our national security strategy um, such as it exists right now. Yeah. You talked about domestic and it just, you know, clicked with me because what I've been saying is just another piece of it is, you know, I looked up the numbers and they're number one in the world in math uh, in the schools. And we are, we are teaching our third graders critical race theory. You know, this has got to please them when, when they look at, you know, what we're arguing about and what we're doing and what we're doing in the schools. My gosh. Well, hundred percent. They are not messing around. Uh, And um, 
it's quite uh, it's quite amazing. I um I had an experience. I, I don't know if I told you about it when I was Secretary of Education. Very well known American who was representing the communists in China came to see me and he said we have a problem. The CRC is sending uh, his graduate students out to Caltech and other places to do postgrad work in physics and math. When they see Palo Alto, they they want to stay. And a lot of them stay and need your help in getting them to go back. And I said, hey, I'm, I, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm going to help, but I want to get all of them to stay, all of them to defect. Conversation didn't go well. <laughs> Their response, I don't know if you recall this, Mike, but New York Times ran a picture of a place that they, they just built to resemble Palo Alto. And they just rebuilt Palo Alto. You liked it out there at Stanford? So we'll rebuild it. Uh, to bring them back. And apparently they're, they're all coming back, but I think the ties are stronger. I think it's harder, much harder to defect now yeah, uh, because they got their, their claws on you. And what I was saying about these Chinese students uh, generally, one other aspect of this that I know very little about it, but frightens me is they are kind of gobbling up natural resources around the world. Aren't they, you know, basic elements and materials that we need for, Batteries, medicine, all sorts of stuff. They, they're in Africa. I was talking to some people who were trying to invest in Zimbabwe, other places. And we're not going to allow American investors to go until they straighten out human rights. Maybe right, maybe wrong. But the Chinese don't care about that. No. They don't care about human rights. We, we just like to come in and get the rubber, you know, or get the materials, or get the diamonds, or get the, the zinc, uh, or the ore, or whatever it is. Um, and this is a problem too, right? I mean, they're, they're gobbling up all this stuff, which the rest of the world needs, which we need. Yeah, they they have a dominant position when it comes to rare earths. They've weaponized that in the past against uh, Japan. Um, and that's something we've been trying to think through. I'm on the supply chain task force. It's how do we, how do we think, how do we, how do we, um, uh, wean ourselves off our, our dependency when it comes to rare earths, which are not rare. They're just, they're just difficult to mine and extract. And, yeah. and then, and then how do we work with our allies, particularly Australia, which has. Very want nasty. to talk about Australia. Yeah. Want to talk about Australia. Go ahead. Um, a yeah, huge problem. Uh, it's part of the reason why China was trying to increase its presence um, in Greenland over the last uh, four years, uh, which is, as abundant uh, rare earth deposits. Um, I, I was sort of joking early on in the administration that we should try and purchase Greenland from, from the Danes. Uh, and then Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed about it, which was quite good, actually. Yeah. But I'm not sure they'd willingly sell it to us. But the president be... wanted to do it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah I, I think so. Um, but made, uh, they they're... Made, made fun of him, but, you know, not a bad idea. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, we, so yeah, huge problem. And your your point about the lack of human rights concerns is is a very important one. Um, what about the Australians? Can we count on them? What about the Australians and the Japanese feeding each other? How strong are they? Can we count on them? Yeah, I, I think Australia has kind of been the canary in the coal mine for all of this. I mean, the the big shift we underwent in the last four years started really in Australia. I mean, they it kind of woke. There's this great book called Silent Invasion by Clive Hamilton, which talks about the way in which the Chinese Communist Party had infiltrated a lot of their their politics. There were some big political scandals. And the, so they started to pass these laws. Some were campaign finance laws. You know, they, they, there's just, there was just sort of a sea change in Australia politically, where now it's kind of a bipartisan position to take a tougher line on China. And then what you saw when when the Australian government had the temerity early on in the pandemic to suggest we should do an investigation into the origin. Uh, China struck back with a bunch of really strong economic sanctions against Australian wine and some other uh, Australian industries. And so, you know, I think I think what you saw in Australia is that they're they they woke up before we did. Um, now there's a long way to go in terms of our military partnership, in particular. We've made some advancements. You know, we got a bunch of Marines uh, in Darwin, um, but how do we really enhance our joint? naval presence how do we make sure that american ships are are routinely going to australia being repaired in australian shipyards um that's sort of the thinking and then how do we turn you know on the question of rare earths we we formally incorporated australia into something called our national technological industrial base and the idea was really to promote technological cooperation between us but it hasn't really amounted to much so how do we use that framework and really start to to collaborate with them in key areas, whether it's rare earths, semiconductors, energetics. I mean, okay. take your pick. That to me is the, the sweet spot. Uh, and that's our relative advantage, right? I mean, we, we have this network of allies sure. 
in a hundred years of shared history, we've we've shed blood on every battlefield together. I mean, how do we really build on that uh, within the free world and and thereby but, out? China? But some people are better than this than others, and and you know, with us more. And Australia seems to me dispositionally, philosophically, are more with us than a lot of European countries. Hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. They what also have a great Japanese? sense of humor, which I appreciate. Yeah. The Aussies don't take themselves too seriously. You so bet. that goes a long you way. You bet. It's like the Badgers, right? Is that a Badger <laughs> shirt, by the way? This is. A, I got my Badger I shirt. Thought yeah. so. Yeah. I thought I saw the top of the W. Well, we'll see. <laughs> always, there's always hope. It's like the University of Texas football team. That's right. I always think they're going to be great, and then something terrible happens. Yeah. Anyway, Japan. Uh, they're not a canary in the coal mine. Well, Japan, uh, if memory serves, Japan invested a couple billion dollars in in basically in economic decoupling from China, uh, trying to onshore industries that they thought were too um, in bed with uh, with Beijing. Uh, I think my in my ideal world, you know, we have something called the Five Eyes Alliance. It's uh, our closest partners with which we share most intelligence. So it's us. It's the Brits, it's the Aussies, it's Canada, and it's uh, the Kiwis, it's New Zealand. I think we should be actively looking towards incorporating in, uh, Japan into that alliance. Uh, Japan is an absolutely critical part uh, of this puzzle. You know, it had a fantastic leader in Abe, who's obviously no longer leader uh, of the country, but um, there's no question. And then uh, when it comes to rare earths, uh, they had one of the biggest finds of rare earth deposits in their territorial waters in around 2014. Now we haven't figured out how to extract it, but there's a ton of ways in which I think we can turbocharge our, our cooperation with Japan, um, you know, turbocharge our, our military uh, partnership, an absolute critical part of this, this, this puzzle. And the longstanding animosity between Japan and China. Totally. Helps yeah, totally. We got to let you go, but uh, just a couple of things. Will, will we, will we have, a military confrontation with China in the next 10 years? Uh, if, you know, gun to head, if I had to bet, yes. I mean, I, really? I think all of these, um, I, all of these, these, these trends are, are, are intersecting. I mean, one, you have the party itself. The Chinese Communist Party is just getting more and more aggressive. And remarkably, you know, a year and a half after they unleashed a deadly pandemic on the world and covered it up, is even more uh, aggressive than yeah. they were prior to the pandemic. I mean, it's, ju- it's just absolutely remarkable. And within that, you have Xi's personal desire to just to cement his legacy on the Taiwan issue and, and resolve it. You know, I think you have disarray in the West, um, sort of a crisis of confidence within America, and just this relentless America sucks narrative that's coming out of the, the, yeah. the left. Um, and, uh, you know... To that, I, I just, I guess, I would would add, uh, you know, a, the sort of the fiscal, long term fiscal challenges we have, we yeah. have here, and all of that I think is going to conspire to put us in a very bad uh, position here. So I consider it part of my job in Congress, if not my my overall mission, to prevent that from happening, prevent World War III from happening. I was going to um, say, since World War III is it's just some local thing in the Pacific, it's World War III, I guess. I, I mean, who knows, right? I you know, know. It's, it's, we tend to read, I think, a, a, a causal story into big events after they happen that were unpredictable at the time. I mean, you know. We don't know. Troops on the ground, Marines on the edge of China. We don't know. There could be some exogenous event that disrupts this whole thing. Um, I, who the heck knows? Okay. But right. I think it makes sense to plan around the assumption that she is going to make a move on Taiwan in this decade and uh, yeah. build a military that is capable of preventing that. Good. Good. We're not doing that at the moment, right? No, no. Let's go. Two last things. Uh, reading list, best book on China or books on China. Well, I was uh, going to ask you for a non-China reading list. The book I'm reading right now that was recommended to me by all the smart China folks, uh, Pottinger, David Fife and others is called, uh, I'm looking at it right now, the beautiful country, and the Middle Kingdom by John Pomfret, uh, which I'm about 100 pages in right now, and is phenomenal. And it really goes through the history of the relationship. Uh, I would, for a more fun contemporary read, I think Josh Rogan's recent book, uh, Chaos Under Heaven, about the last four years is actually phenomenal. And, and Josh has been quite brave, uh, you know, as a center-left journalist in, in pointing out the, the lab leak hypothesis right. and really kind of broke a lot of this loose. And then if for a heavier read, um, 
Mike Green at Georgetown wrote a book. It's about sort of, you know, the history of our engagement with China, which is really, uh, really good. And then add on to that, anything that um, Oriana Mastro writes, she just had a, a foreign affairs piece called uh, The Taiwan Temptation, which is, is really good. And I you don't know, say that about a lot of foreign affairs pieces. Uh, and then Jude Blanchett, I had a really good piece in foreign affairs about she and his design. So that, that would be my, my starting point right there. And then I would add to that, a fun thing you can do, Bill, is go on YouTube and watch uh, two movies, Wolf Warrior 1 and Wolf Warrior 2. The latter is the highest grossing Chinese film of all time. They're kind of like Rambo for China. And what there's been this thing that's happened in the last two years called Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, where all these uh, CCP apparatchiks have been all over social media and they're called Wolf Warriors. And they get their name from this movie, which is a very jingoistic anti-american chinese military movie it's worth it, it, it makes like a transformers movie look like very subtle in comparison it's worth watching these movies i think it gives you an insight into a lot of things about the current state of the party and it's sort of in, in chinese nationalism don't tell me they were made in america uh i don't know i you know but we have our own american movies that are censoring themselves uh out of fear of of losing business in china right top gun 2 uh, all the list goes on yeah really yeah yeah uh, what about what about the pillsbury book is it the 100 years oh forward? yeah pillsbury book's phenomenal uh that's that's great uh and i think he's coming out with another one uh or okay. if it hasn't already come out i haven't i haven't read it yet the, the book I mentioned in Australia is, is Silent Invasion by Clive Hamilton. And he just published a, another book uh, that's at least China adjacent. I have not read that yet, so I can't give a recommendation, but very, very good. But Pillsbury is excellent. All right. Uh, Marine, congressman, scholar, doctor. Thank you. We're glad you're there, Mike Gallagher. We're really glad you're there. Well, thank you're, you. Uh, you're, 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 you're a gem and, and in some ways unique. And um, we really... Appreciate your presence and your influence and your voice. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, doctor. It was an honor to be with you. Thanks for your service to our country. Appreciate it. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter, William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends, and we'll catch up next week.